You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. I want to welcome a very special co-host into the studio today. I have Sandy Werness from the Walter and Jean Boke Global Autoimmune Institute here with me. She's been a longtime partner of our program, and I'm so glad she can join me. Welcome, Sandy. Hey, Vanessa. So today's podcast is an interesting one. I'm sure that many of you have heard some of the debates about the merits and downfalls of having a gluten-sensing device like NEMA, which we'll be discussing today. Do they actually provide peace of mind or make users even more anxious? And do they really work? We're here today to discuss the results of a recent study that measures exactly this. To share more with our listeners about this controversial topic, I have Dr. Randy Wolf in the studio with me. Dr. Wolf is a faculty member and researcher at Teachers College at Columbia University. She was a leader of the Benefits and Barriers to Portable Gluten Detection Study that was published in a recent issue of the journal Clinical Gastrohepatology. So, <laughs> welcome, Randy. I'm so glad you could join me. Good morning, Vanessa and Sandy. Thank you so much for having me. So, Randy, can you share a little bit of background on the study with us? We both know that there is controversy in the celiac community surrounding these devices, so I'm curious, what were the goals here with the study? Absolutely. So, last year, my colleagues at the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University and I decided to take a closer look at NEMA, a device that had just recently come on the market and patients with celiac disease were starting to buy, use, and ask many of the physicians their opinion about it. Um, Anecdotally, NEMA was being called everything from the sort of be-all, end-all to a completely useless gadget. But there were no studies that tried to examine its use and potential effects on clinical outcomes. So we felt it was important to look at this new technology um, like like NEMA Um, that was being used to manage celiac disease um, with an open mind and study it. Um, We also knew from our own work as well as other studies that eating at restaurants and other people's homes are particular risks for unintentional gluten exposures and can be a huge source of anxiety and stress for people with celiac disease. So our primary goal was to conduct a study to determine the potential, we call it a feasibility and acceptability study, so the potential for NEMA to promote quality of life and gluten-free diet adherence in teenagers and adults with celiac disease. We also wanted to describe how people were using the device um, and the potential benefits and barriers um, that seem to be associated with it. Um, so I could tell you, should I tell you a little bit what we did, the study itself? Absolutely. Sure. So, we, yeah. So we, um, so what we did was we recruited 30, per, 30 patients, 15 teenagers and 15 adults that had biopsy-proven celiac disease, and we gave them all a NEMA sensor. Um, for those that aren't familiar with NEMA, probably your, your viewers are, but I'll just say a few words. It's a portable sensor designed to accept a tiny, like a pea-sized sample of food. It's inserted in a single-use capsule, and then it tests for the presence of gluten in the sample. Um, The chemistry is kind of complex, but involves an antibody system within the capsule that binds to the proteins in the gluten if it's present, 
And if um, enough gluten is found, it's detected by these sensors. And the user will either see a smiley face, and that indicates that no gluten was found or gluten less than 20 parts per million, or the words gluten found um, would be the other option. Um, and although it's optimized to detect greater or equal to 20 parts per million, NEMA frequently detects gluten at levels that are less than that, um, which we see as a limitation of the device. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, so what else? So what we did was we gave people basic instructions on how to use the NEMA and its limitations, um, but we gave no recommendations for what, where, when to test. Um, we then randomly assigned people to different amounts of capsules, so either light, moderate, or heavy use. So we either gave them six, 12, or 24 capsules per month for three months. And we then collected a whole bunch of survey information at the beginning and end of the study. So we gave out validated measures of quality of life, of gluten-free diet adherence, anxiety, depression, we also asked a variety of questions related to benefits, barriers, will they continue to use it after the study ends, were they satisfied with the amount of capsules they received, and we also gave a little quiz at the end to see if they remembered what NEMA can and can't accurately test. So for example, NEMA can't test, um, detect some forms of gluten like fermented or hydrolyzed products like soy sauce, beer, and barley malt. So we wanted to see if they were using the device cognitive of those limitations. And that was, you know, that was the design of the study. What a great explanation. Thank you so much for that. What was the overall reaction from participants using the devices? Did you find any difference, for example, in how people liked using them uh, as far as whether they were an adult or a teenager? Yeah, great question. You know, the initial reaction was definitely one of curiosity. So we had over 80 people that expressed interest in participating almost immediately when we put up the flyers and sent out the email. And we completed our recruitment in less than two weeks. So I think that suggests, you know, there's a certainly a subset of individuals with celiac disease that may want options. And the idea, at least, of this technology was potentially very, very exciting. After um, being in the study and then using the device for three months, I think the overall reactions were still generally, um, but not uniformly positive. So based on the survey items, um, positive reactions were that over 90% of the adults and the teenagers um, told us that NEMA was easy to understand, that it was helpful or useful, it gave them peace of mind, and that they really liked that it was portable and easy to carry around. Um, the vast majority, both adults and teens, said they were going to recommend NEMA to others with celiac disease and that they planned to continue using it when the study ended. But there were also a bunch of negative reactions. So the biggest was related to closing of the capsule. So screwing on the lid of the capsule once you put the pea-sized amount of food inside, because that grinds the sample. And it, and it actually is very, um, people found it very challenging to tighten it completely. And about 90% of adults and teens complained that the capsules were hard to twist and, and close as they're supposed to be. For the teens in particular, 
most um, also found that using the NEMA was time consuming and 43% either agreed or strongly agreed that it made them anxious to use it compared to none of the adults. Um, so, you know, I think it was interesting how much the physical difficulty closing the capsules wound up being sort of this major drawback for the teens. They found sort of that struggle really embarrassing when they were with their friends. It, it often eliminated the ability to use it independently, which I think is what they were hoping for because they needed their parent to help them or an adult help them close it. And so I think it just created this general lack of enthusiasm for the teenagers. Um, NEMA though, you know, I have to say they've since, they must have gotten a lot of feedback. So they since developed this wrench um, that now comes with the NEMA and you put it over the capsule and the wrench helps you twist the capsule shut. That was not available when we started our, you know, at the time of our study. So um, we don't know the impact of that. Um, I suspect it would, you know, address that quite a bit, that, that one particular concern. Um, and then if you're interested, I'll tell you, just share with you, um, since you asked about positive and negative reactions, you know, we also have a lot of quotes from people. This was not published, but we had a lot of qualitative data that we're hoping we'll publish separately. But for example, um, some of the positive things that people said were, you know, one quote was, you know, if I had concerns, I had the device as a way to double or triple check, or another teen had said, you know, I was able to go out to the Wendy's with my friends instead of bringing food from home because I felt safe after testing. In the past, I never would have risked it, risked it. And another teen said, you know, I really like that it fit into my backpack. I'm going to college in the fall and it's going to be easy to carry around. And then we also had quotes for some of the reactions of things that people said they didn't like. So, for example, one was, you know, I couldn't bring it to a party and do myself because the capsules were too hard to close and I could only use it when my dad was around. And then another, um, another teenager said, you know, I wasn't sure what my family would do if we got a wheat symbol, you know, a gluten found in, our, in the restaurant. Would we then reorder? Would we wait for another meal? Would we leave? <laughs> they didn't actually think about what they'd do if they actually found the gluten. So that was, some, that was a negative reaction they were they were sort of anxious about. Did they share with you what they did do? Positive. Did they share with you what they ended up doing? They did. We did. We did more generally. We asked. It was more generally. We asked. Not in that particular case, but we asked more generally. Um, when when it came up positive, what what did you in a restaurant with gluten? What what did you typically do? And so more generally, we asked everybody that. And, it, and there was really a range. I think most people did tell the restaurant, the owner or somebody at the restaurant, because we were curious, you know, how did the restaurant react? And, you know, I'm happy to say for the most part, it sounded like the restaurants reacted very positively, you know, offering to replace the meal, you know, very surprised, but, um, you know, in general, very positively from the restaurant's end. So I also tested out these mm -hmm. devices for a bit personally, and mm -hmm. I found that the most stressful time for me was when we were in a pizza restaurant with my, well, he was three at the time, um, mm -hmm. when we were doing this, and I got three positives, 
and the restaurant remade the pizza each time and like took me back in the kitchen and showed me how they were making it. They had a whole separate gluten-free area. They had separate crusts, separate sauces, separate cheese. And they yeah. were, you know, tenting it completely with foil. It was like everything you would check off on a list to do. Mm-hmm. And they were still coming up positive. And we'd eaten there dozens of times and uh, Brandon and I had never gotten sick. But I found that I could not – you know, consciously feed him something knowing that I had a positive rating. Yeah, and it's it's unclear why did that keep coming up positive, right? You have to ask, you know, what, you know, that's unusual that you had the opportunity to then go and see for yourself um, their procedures. But I think in that case, you know, it's interesting, you said even, even though you saw the procedures, you decided not to, but I think some other people might, you know, in that case would say, look, you know, I asked all the right questions and I'm going to eat it anyway. So. See, I would make the decision to eat it anyways for myself, but not for my son. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like I make a different decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, and that's something we ask people as well, um, which, you know, which I think you we'll talk about maybe a yeah, little bit later, but, um, you know, we asked them if they came up positive, what did you do? You know, what did you, did you um, eat the food? Did you not eat the food? Did you notice any differences in the reactions by gender? Mm-hmm. You know, we really didn't. We had um, 19 um, of our 30 participants, about two-thirds were female, and we had 11, um, so about a third that were male. And we didn't see any differences based on gender for any of our outcomes, but I, we also have to keep in mind, this was a small study. It was only 30 participants. So it's really hard to start stratifying your data and looking by different subgroups. Mm-hmm. But to the extent we could, we did not um, notice any differences that sort of the general barriers and um, benefits that people were telling us about, as well as, um, you know, effect on quality of life and adherence seemed to be the same, regardless if it was um, males or females in the study. Randy, let's focus on uh, quality of life. How did you measure it and what did you see through the course of the study? Did you see a difference from at the end, from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this wound up being one of our most interesting findings was that after the three months, we saw that adults, we didn't see this for the teens, but that adults showed improvement in reported overall quality of life. And this was using uh, what we call a celiac disease-specific quality of life instrument. It was a 20-item validated instrument that asks about how participants feel having celiac disease, the extent to which they feel overwhelmed by celiac disease, limited in their options, worried about their future, things like this. And in particular, the quality of life scores related to the limitations we found improved the most after the NEMA intervention. So people were saying that they were less likely to now avoid going to parties, less likely to worry about eating at other people's homes. Um, And then interestingly, we also found a significant decrease in depression scores for the adult as well. So there did seem to be... um, at least this perceived um, increase in quality of life at the end of the three months. 
we did not see a difference based on the number of capsules that they were given. And um, although we saw these improvements in quality of life and depression for the adults, we did not see similar improvements in those same measures for the teenagers. Um, and I think um, even though we saw these improvements in quality of life, at least for the adults, you know, there were also some things that we were really concerned about or some limitations of particular concern was that when we quizzed um, the participants, about half of them were not able to recall all of the device's limitations that we asked about. So for example, many didn't seem to remember that the device couldn't accurately detect gluten in fermentable foods like soy sauce and barley malt vinegar, despite having reviewed the instructions with them and having access to various forms of publicly available NEMA support. So um, NEMA emails and the website and the app, um, but they were still um, about 50% of the sample were not recalling all of the limitations that um, you know we had talked about at the beginning and that NEMA sends with instructions when you get the device. Um, our sample was particularly well educated, and so we worry that this knowledge deficit, you know, could potentially be even greater among the general population. So we definitely think more needs to be done to ensure that users are aware of what can and can't be tested. And if users um, don't know about the limitations, you know, a smiley face could provide a false sense of security. People need to know what the device works for and what it can't work for. So certainly more. Um, you know, I think needs to be done in that area. I know Nemo would say they're they're doing a lot, and I think they are trying to make sure their their users know about the limitations. But it seemed, at least with our sample, the message wasn't really getting through completely. And I think it's hard too, because people, even you know, very educated people, don't necessarily always know what's in the food that they're eating, or even what mm -hmm. fermented oh, food is. <laughs> And, and so, or even what? Or even uh, what fermented sorry, what food, or even what fermenting a food means. Good point. Sure, sure, great point. And um, um, yeah, I think I think that's um, that's a great point. You know, you still have to sort of know, still have to know what foods may or may may or may not contain gluten, and you still need to ask all these questions. You know, if people use the device, it really does indeed need to be a supplement, not um, just relying on it solely. And um, people certainly need to know about its limitations. So just, I want to stay on this topic for just a second. Did the participants sure. make any comments to you um, in their in their responses about the devices not detecting the gluten in the fermented foods or soy sauce? And would, did you get any sense of how they would feel if the test said that the food was gluten-free but actually contained one of those ingredients? Yeah. You know, again, from our qualitative interviews, um, that wasn't in the paper, but um, again, we hope to, to publish the qualitative. You know, we were sort of surprised that this didn't come up more when we asked about barriers. You know, we asked open-endedly, like, in addition to the surveys, survey questions on benefits and barriers, we also asked open-ended, like what other benefits, what are the barriers? And only two of the 30, both of them were adults, said that they didn't like that NEMA couldn't test fermented foods or medications. 
So um, one of the two, how she very specifically said, like, Nima doesn't test for fermented wheat, and if I go to a Japanese or Thai restaurant, it's not going to be able to test if they use the gluten-free soy sauce that I asked for. And she's right, it wouldn't have. And so, you know, I think we can interpret that two ways, either two people, only two people brought it up as something that was a big concern for them, but unfortunately, it could also be reflective of the fact that people, um, you know, uh, uh, half, half of our sample didn't know that that was a limitation. Um, so, so it goes back to what we said earlier, how important it is for NEMA users to really understand that um, not being able to detect fermented foods or barley malt, you know, is a limitation. Um, and again, more anecdotally than what we found, but I, I remember when we did talk about the limitations Initially, there were also a lot of the, um, you know, I think teams that in particular who, who thought, ah, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I really just, you know, I'm just really curious about pizza and pasta. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so I think for some people, you know, again, if, 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 if foods that you like um, and that would want to test, if the soy sauce is a concern, you know, this would not be a good tool for you. Right. I think that's a really good point. The problem is is that uh, a lot of foods that um, do contain those fermented um, um, items so um, and and in fact um, you know they're they're somewhat pervasive in foods not just in Japanese food but but um so I mean it, it's an important issue for people with celiac because it's no question about it yeah and I think it also goes back to what we said before that you know, it, it would have to be used as sort of an extra layer of information. People still have to know that when they go to a restaurant, you know, they have to ask, like, does the dressing have soy sauce in it? Does, you know, they have, does, does that sauce have, what are the ingredients in that sauce? Like, they still, mm -hmm. I think, would have to, you know, it doesn't in any way, it, it can't replace that. So there's still, people should still be, you know, feel strongly working with a dietitian doing nutrition education so that people have have the skills to ask all the right questions and you know and then because of exactly what you just said these foods are pervasive and people still have to know to ask for them you know I've talked about this one um, family in our clinic many times um, that they their daughter had persistent TTG levels and you know they swore she was on this perfect gluten-free diet they asked so many questions and when we finally did like a really deep dive into the food she was eating um, they ate at the same sushi restaurant um, at least twice a week and they they had pictures of the gluten-free soy sauce bottle that they were eating from but when I went into the restaurant and asked them to show me where they refill the bottle from, they brought out a gigantic jug of food service size cucumin soy sauce that was completely regular soy sauce. Um, so they'd only ever actually bought one bottle of gluten-free soy sauce and were refilling it oh with the goodness. regular. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? And, and just, just look at the, the detective work that you had to do just to find that one thing out. Isn't that amazing? But it's terrifying that even with a device to measure gluten, they still would go on thinking it was gluten-free soy sauce. Anyone who has celiac disease, celiac disease has stories like that, you know, yep. has... has so many, unfortunately, have so many stories like that, just all these errors that could occur. Um, I think you'd also ask how would they feel if it, 
uh, you know, about if it could, you know, certainly um, that would be a, a, you know, it's a huge limitation that it can't test for that. And, um, and um, I think, um, you know, it just doesn't have the technology or the capability to, um, to detect um, the gluten molecules from fermented, the fermentation process. So it's just a limitation of the device. Absolutely. So, um, so how did the participants feel knowing that the level of gluten detected could be anywhere from five parts per million to infinity? So in other words, mm -hmm. they just couldn't know exactly how much gluten was in there if they received a positive uh, indication from the device. Yeah, I think that's sort of the million dollar question and brings up one of the main, you know, the, perhaps the biggest controversy surrounding NEMA is that you get this um, dichotomous response, you know, gluten or no gluten. And um, when the study began a year ago, there really weren't published studies yet on the evaluation of the sensitivity and specificity of NEMA. So in other words, can the device correctly identify when gluten is present and when gluten is not present? Um, there was data conducted by the NEMA team themselves at the time, and that was publicly available on their website. So as far as at the time when we started our study, you know, participants were told that NEMA was optimized, sort of designed to detect 20 parts per million of gluten and above, and that, you know, less than 20 parts per million is the FDA standard for gluten-free in the U.S., but they were also told that NEMA could sometimes be too sensitive and detect gluten less than 20 parts per million. So, you know, after the three months, we asked participants, you know, what happened when a test came back as gluten found, and this sort of related to what we were talking about before when they expected it to be gluten-free. So this is getting at, you know, did they believe it? <laughs> did they think it was accurate and sort of, or did they say, oh, you know, I don't think it's accurate, so I'm going to, or I think if it came back gluten, um, gluten, it's probably less than 20, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. But what we found was among the 87% of adults that reported having, over the three-month period, having NEMA indicate gluten found in their foods they, um, that they thought were gluten-free, 77 reported that they always trusted the finding. So not all, but about three quarters that they, they thought it was, you know, accurate. They trusted the finding. And 69% said they never ate the food after such a result. And the numbers for teens were that 64% reported having the NEMA indicate gluten found in foods that they thought to be gluten-free. And 100% reported always trusting the finding. And then 89% said they never ate the food after such a result. So, you know, I've been sort of thinking about these a lot, and I think it's, it's hard to know exactly how to interpret that, but I think it suggests that overall, participants believe that NEMA was trustworthy, but occasionally they chose to eat foods that tested positive for gluten anyway, because they also trusted their own judgment and questioning. Um, I mean, one participant in particular, I remember saying, you know, she tested a meal at a local restaurant, it came up. That, it, that the sample had gluten. And she said, but I ate it anyway because I knew the owner, I trusted the owner, and he wouldn't steer me wrong. So, and others repeatedly told us that 
they were using it as a double or triple check, not the sole source of decision making. So they were asking, you know, all the typical questions too. So, so, so what does all that mean? I think, um, you know, I think people, when they got a gluten sound, it seemed like the majority trusted the results and they chose not to eat the food, but that there was some set of people that did not trust the results and they just, um, you know, they relied on the questions that they asked and their own decision-making to, and, you know, I'm assuming perhaps assume that it was less than the 20 parts per million in those cases and they decided to eat the food. Right. So, um, you know, what we don't know is in sort of the big question is, you know, how many of the foods that test gluten found um, are less than 20 parts per million? So maybe in that 2 to 19 range where according to the FDA, it's gluten-free versus being above that level. So it's a big, big gap in the literature that we don't have a sense from restaurant foods. You know, what are the levels when, when, when you cut a pizza with a contaminated cutter, you know, what's the level? Is it going to come back at 100 parts per million or is it going to come back at 5 parts per million? You know, if you boil pasta in contaminated water, you know, what's about the level that it's coming back at? Like, this is a huge gap and we're in conversations to try to do some of those studies because I think there's a real need for people to have a sense, you know, what... Um, what are the levels you would expect? You know, not just if they give you regular pasta instead of gluten-free pasta, um, but but some of these other um, sources of potential cross-contact that everybody worries so much about when they go out to eat. You know, and, and sort of just related to this whole question, we don't want people to restrict more than they have to. You know, and that's also why this is a very controversial device because if something's coming up gluten found, and let's say it was then tested and we found out it was only 10 parts per million, you know, you don't want people potentially, you know, some people will say, well, I don't care, I don't want any. And, and others will say, I don't wanna cut out foods from my diet that I don't have to, I'm already feeling very restrictive. And so, you know, the technology's not there yet, you know, perhaps in the future, I would guess that's where they're going with this, but right now um, it doesn't have that capability. Right. So let's talk about the adults again for a second. Were they all testing yeah. for themselves or were any of them um, with children who had celiac disease and they were testing on behalf of their children? Do you think that this would have changed the findings in any way? Well, the intention was certainly that all the 30 adults and teens were testing for themselves. So parents were not allowed to participate in the study on behalf of their teenagers. Okay. You know, we really wanted to learn the individual's experience using NEMA. Mm -hmm. And we also told participants that, you know, it's okay to not use the device. If you take it home and you don't like it, don't feel you have to use it. Like, that's important for us to learn as well and we'll just ask you and we call you in a few months like what what you did or didn't like but the intention was certainly for um the teenagers um we didn't have anyone under 13 but so the, the intention was for the children to the teens to um do the testing themselves 
We did ask participants if they thought NEMA could, as one of our open-ended questions, improve management of celiac disease, and many mentioned they thought it would be helpful for their siblings or um, brothers or sisters that were away in college or other families that they thought would benefit from the device once the study was over and they're planning on sharing it with them or giving it to them, whatever the case might be. But um, certainly the intention was um, not to give the not to give the children the NEMA and then have their parents do it, but for you know them to see if it helped them, if it made them feel um, more independent or um, or more anxious. You know, we were we had no idea what we would find really. Great, Randy. Thank you so much for such a thorough and interesting explanation of that study. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, what do you feel are the most important takeaways from the study? Do you believe that, for example, that portable testing devices will improve quality of life for celiac patients? Um, you know, I think it's really important to first just point out that this was a pilot study. The sample was small. There was no control group. And while the potential um, to improve quality of life, at least in the adults, was certainly promising. I think it's really important to point out that it was still just a pilot study and that we'd want to um, consider study, you know, looking to further future research and longer follow-up to see if um, there's long-term impacts on things like intestinal healing um, as well as quality of life. So while I think there is promise for gluten detection devices to improve the lives of people with celiac disease, we still haven't identified sort of the best scenario or its optimal use yet. We would still definitely need further studies. Regardless, I would say there were three key takeaways from our study. I'd say first, um, portable gluten sensors like NEMA likely help some people, not all, navigate the diet and improve quality of life but there are a number of limitations. Going back to where we started, I think after the study, I'd say it's neither the be-all, end-all, nor is it a useless gadget. I think it's somewhere in between. It's also early, and um, perhaps as the technology improves, its usefulness will expand as well. Second, I think the greatest benefits were that it was easy to carry around. Many, the majority said it gave them peace of mind, and almost everyone was saying it was used to double or triple check, um, not as the sole source of information. The greatest barriers were that it was hard to close the capsules, so I think that's been largely fixed with the wrench that's now available. It was time-consuming, and for teens, that um, the testing process just made 40% of them anxious. And lastly, um, you know, even among high, a highly educated group of participants, there were big gaps in their knowledge about the device's inability to detect certain forms of gluten, like that, like gluten in fermented or hydrolyzed um, proteins. And now that there is more data on NEMA sensitivity and specificity from studies that have come out, future users also need to be aware that while NEMA does a good job at detecting gluten at levels greater than 20 parts per million, it frequently is detecting gluten at levels less than 20 parts per million. And, you know, that's where I think the big controversy comes in and not wanting to people to restrict foods that they may not have to. 
Wow. That was such wonderful information, Randy. Um, and I think it's been really helpful to have such a great dialogue about the benefits and drawbacks of the new technologies and the roles that it, it could play in our lives. And I, I really love the way you described it about, you know, we're not quite there yet, but that it, it could be something really useful. I think we're in sort of this new era of technology and how people are managing celiac disease. And I think there are things like you know, the AmAware that's coming up and fecal gluten peptides and 23andMe now testing. And, you know, I think, you know, our, our sort of approach is more to be open and learn about them and learn not, you know, we're not saying we're endorsing them. We're just saying we want to learn more and see how people are using them. And so, you know, I think that's, that's kind of where we are now. We're sort of in this new era of technology and, um, and, um, you know, at the, you know, our approach is just to try to learn as much as we can about, about these um, potentially promising um, tools. Absolutely. Well, folks, we are all out of time for today. I hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast and we will talk to you again next time. <laughs>